Good morning, Texas. Welcome to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show. I'm Wyatt Wright, and the show's about your rights and the laws that govern us. Rights you've heard of and care about and would certainly miss if they were gone. I've spent half a lifetime watching government go from trying to do what's right and failing to trying to do what's wrong and succeeding. Every year, more and more personal rights are erased from the books while Americans stand idly by. Don't forget, it's not because we don't care. Of course we care. Our lives are busy enough trying to raise our kids and feed our families. And while we're busying ourselves with life, because that happens every day, while we're busying ourselves with life, the metaphorical water temperature is rising all around us, like that frog who gets boiled without ever knowing it. On this show, we discuss legal issues that affect you and me, the people of Texas. We take a hard look at the laws that affect your freedom, your ability to access the courts, to vote, to speak freely, or in short, to live the American dream. We've got an exciting show this morning, everybody. Exciting show. Uh, make sure that you stick around because joining us today in the studio is Dr. Bill Israel, a professor of journalism and political communication at our very own St. Mary's University of San Antonio. As always, always no time. Let's jump right in and get wet. Have you been following the election propaganda? Certainly difficult to ignore. And in the wake of the United States Supreme Court's opinion in Citizens United, huge corporations are free to spend unlimited amounts of money in secret, in secret, to influence you at the polls. You've heard the show on Citizens United. Log on to WyattWrightShow.com and refresh yourself with that. We've got to put a stop to it. But in the meantime, unlimited amounts of money are flowing. That means more and more clogged airwaves than ever before. It means that the party's conventions, although now over, are in the fight of their life for every available spot on the airwaves. Now, it's, it, it has long been common, ladies and gentlemen, for candidates to give their message over the airwaves. As long as we've had airwaves, this has been common. But it was unacceptable, you see, to simply brazenly lie and mislead people. That was a concept that was foreign to early broadcast America, but that is exactly what a large segment of our political candidates are doing. Party affiliation is not important. The fact of the matter is that this occurs. Why are they doing it? For two reasons. One, because it works. It works. And two, because we allow them to do it. Many times... Many times reporting the news no longer involves getting to the bottom of a story. Instead, it is the product of story writers professionally paid. I mean, these are people who are professionally paid to write at the behest of a special interest. So how is this done? How is the media used as a tool to spread bad po uh, propaganda by the ultra-wealthy and powerful? Well, we've got... A topic in mind, and we're going to cover that. As a reminder, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show, a show where we point out and discuss the ever-increasing disappearance of your American rights. So helping us with this question about how this propaganda gets spread and why we let it happen, joining us in the studio today is Dr. Bill Israel, a professor of journalism and political communication at St. Mary's University of San Antonio. Professor Israel has worked in the media industry for many years for such outfits as the San Francisco Chronicle, the Dallas Morning News, USA Today, the New York Times, CBS Radio, and ABC Television. He also taught a class at the University of Texas called P 
politics and the press, where his co-teacher was none other than the infamous Karl Rove. Professor Israel put all his experiences together and last year authored a book called A Nation Seized, How Karl Rove and the Political Right Stole Reality, Beginning with the News. Professor Israel, thank you for joining us today on The Wyatt Wright Show. Good morning, Wyatt. Thank you for inviting me. You know, the premise of your work, of this book, that is, when I say your work today, we're talking about this book, although I'm certain you have other uh, irons in the fire. The premise of your work here and of our show today is how it is possible in the face of horrendous facts against you to convince people to like you anyway. <laughs> I mean, and I see you giggling, but in, in your book, you quoted a sociologist who said that, quote, the news has become the exercise of power over the interpretation of reality, end quote. Talk to me a little bit about this. Narrative counts in any fashion that it's applied. And when you seize the ability to control the narrative, you end up helping decide what people know and likely what they think about. In the last 30 to 40 years, the news itself has been severely chopped um, by virtue of the same kinds of source, uh, uh, same kinds of trends by um, people who are wealthy and powerful in the country. Um, the, uh, let me give you an example. The, San, the staff of the San Antonio Express News, for example, is one third the size in the newsroom that it was 10 years ago. Okay. That's a small indication. CBS News, uh, the great network, used to have thousands of people, and now they're down to a few hundred. That's that's regulation. What we use, what we saw in the nineteen late sixties and seventies, was a peak in the the quality of of mainstream news. That's been systematically chopped away at by the same kinds of forces, leveraged buyouts that have made the news into a profit-making proposition rather than serving a constituency as it should. Gotcha. So, so now we've seen this dramatic decrease in the type of investigative reporting and, and legitimate journalism. Uh, you know, even Tom Brokaw has talked about that on many occasions than we used to have in the past. It sounds like then the focus is on dominating the conversation. It is, and a good way to look at that is through the work of the News Corporation, headed by Rupert Murdoch. All right. um, that operation is the same operation uh, that had to close down its newspaper in the United Kingdom earlier this year when it was clear that that operation had hacked um, uh, the email and phone, uh, phone records of lots of people in the U.K., and it became clear that they were a law-breaking operation. That's the same operation that owns the Wall Street Journal in this country and Fox News. Right. And that and, and that sort of behavior, while criminal, is, is if you dominate the airwaves, is something that can be a mere speed bump in the road as opposed to a brick wall. You can indeed. A good example is the um, that gets at this issue is what happened with the Fairness Doctrine in the 1980s. There used to be a doctrine in broadcasting in the United States that said every license, every broadcast license depends on um, for renewal on being able to demonstrate a fairness and a balance in its approach to political points of view. I see. By 1987, the Reagan administration succeeded in dumping the fairness proposition um, in, a, in a series of, of court battles. And as a consequence, the, uh, the talk radio industry erupted. And at this point, it's completely dominated by right-wing voices. Of um, As Richard Vigory, the great um, the great conservative uh, mail, direct mail wizard says of 4,000 talk radio hosts at one point, about 20 of them were liberals to the extent that one of them used to go to a, a uh, 
talk radio convention dressed with a Lone Ranger mask and calling himself the Lone Liberal. <laughs> and why not? Well, why is that? I mean, wh- why did we see this explosion, uh, which you even point out in the book, This these thousands of talk radios, almost all are conservatives. Why is that? Why didn't it it spread out more evenly? There are a couple reasons. One that dumping of the fairness doctrine, like a number of dumpings, including the dumping of economic regulation in this country that enabled the last financial calamity to occur in 2007-2008, is a, partly a product of a deliberate effort to ensure um, domination of right-wing points of view over the airwaves and throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Um, that really dates from an effort that began in the 1960s by leaders of the new right, Richard Vigory, Charles Black, Morton Blackwell, um, and others, that began creating institutions like the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the Federalist Society. Um, there were few of them to, to begin with, but by 1978, there were 70 of them, and they succeeded in tweaking the ideology of the country sufficiently that a uh, half dozen liberal senators got dumped in 1978, and Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. That was just the beginning. By 2000, there were 500 of them, and they changed the ideology enough in the country that they uh, were able to get a, a majority on the Supreme Court and enable the selection of a president without a majority vote. Yes, and and of course you're referring to the presidential election of 2000. Uh, interestingly, though, and you talk about the rise of these of these societies in 1964, uh, after Goldwater was was thoroughly trounced, it seemed to be a somewhat un- a universal concept that that the the bold conservatism at the time was by and large dead. I mean, we still had yet we had the we had the Kennedy. Uh, Democrats to come. We had the the Texas Johnson Republic. Or, I mean, Democrats to come, and that was a very strong thing. You mentioned in the book, though, that the the people who who prophesied uh, the the rise of these institutions, such as the Cato Institute and the Federal Society, etc., literally went out. And I loved how you pointed this out. Went into Washington to to the clerk of the House of Representatives and said, "Give me a list of all of Barry Goldwater's supporters." So they had an initial mailing list. I mean, it seems to me then that there was a beginning point to this strategy to come back and and take over by whatever means it takes. And I want to get your thoughts on this, but let me throw out this example. Here we've got the presidential election of 2004. We have a president, George W. Bush, who knew little to nothing about foreign policy. I mean, you, you didn't have to, to, to pay much attention to know that. Um, blundered our relationships with our allies, cut social programs for the poor in order to fund tax cuts for the rich, shut down environmental regulations, took us into a trumped-up war, inflated the national debt to unheard of heights. I mean, the list goes on. Okay, Professor, how do you make him look good to middle-class America? You don't have to do that. All you have to do is win at the margins. In 2004, George Bush was able to do that in Ohio by pulling over 16% of the black vote, just enough to tilt a majority in Ohio. Wow. How do you do that? I mean, what do you, if you're going to set out to do that, what's the, what's the flag that you want to be marching with? It's less a flag than calculation. How do you control the votes that are going to be cast? How do you identify digitally just how many you need? How do you mobilize your resources in just the right way to turn those people out? And more importantly, this, this election, how do you suppress the kinds of voters who you don't want to vote? Uh-huh. There's a recent piece by uh, an investigative journalist who's been around a while who suggests that up to six million votes this year could be suppressed 
as the direct result of the kinds of activities that uh, Karl Rove and others are up to. Um, that's a danger to the republic. Sure, and it's like the the, the, the voter ID laws that were so, quote, necessary uh, being promoted by uh, uh, the Texas and, and other states when, in fact, there hasn't been any uh, – there has been no voter fraud prosecutions at all in, in the entirety of Bush's uh, presidency. Uh, and now, of course, those have been thrown out, but who knows for how long. Now, Rove's power – at one point in your book, you said that uh, uh, his power, quote, lay in snapping issues from their context and redefining them in waves, ways that advantage. Bush. Now, I suppose that can be interpreted to mean or his client, whoever his client is of the day. And you said, in fact, that uh, regarding Rove, if challengers suggest you've fuzzed the issues, attack the challengers by accusing them of practicing class warfare. Scholars call it ad hominem attacks. If you can't win the argument, discredit your opponent. Professor, first of all, what would Socrates think of these types of attacks? Are they ethical and, and do they happen? Well, moreover, this this ad hominem attack that I'm describing happened in a classroom at the University of Texas. Really? Tell me. It did. Um, one day, Carl was describing this process known as demagnetizing issues, and uh, students began asking him questions about, well, wait a minute, that doesn't add up relative to the history that we know about. At that point, Carl snapped and said, what are you trying to do, promote class warfare? <laughs> So right away, you've got common sense being attacked with, with some sort of uh, counterattack. Right. And at the point that you succumb to an attack like that, you've lost. Right. I understand. And then you also mentioned this use of push polls, explaining that they're, they're used to push voters away from one candidate to the other. They really don't have anything to do with, with actually uh, polling or surveying. And I've heard the phone ring. And had, are these employed also quite often? Definitely. In fact, um, I told you about the 500 institutions of the right yes, that there were yes. by 2000. Karl Rove has added four more in the last two years, one of which is the American Action Network, which is uh, deeply involved in trying to make sure that um, the uh, the seat currently held by Francisco Canseco is maintained by Republican hands. I see. Quite a way. Now, you, you, you also go into a section of this book dealing with propaganda, and I really like this because – the word propaganda is one that can often be uh, misunderstood. You point out, and before I get there, let me just tell you, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show, uh, where the program where we're pointing out and discussing the ever-increasing disappearance of your American rights. Joining us in the studio today is Dr. Bill Israel, uh, a professor at St. Mary's University, joining us to talk today about a nation seized and the the disappearance of reality in the news. Now, propaganda, it's not always bad, is it, Professor? I mean, I think you just in here a white gray black thing what are we talking about white is propaganda in, in intended to encourage people in a positive direction all right gray is a little bit fuzzy a little less uh, um, perhaps a little more dubious black is intended to get people to do exactly opposite of their interests i see so black is is the is certainly the negative form of propaganda yeah all right uh and and, and i think you pointed out that the black is for instance if it's if it's if it's designed to be out, outwardly false and to mislead then that might be the type that was used in 1930s germany or close to it 1930s germany and and yeah. not incidentally an array of elections in this country okay <laughs> Well, and, and this is what we as Americans need to be, need to be pointing out and aware of. In the 1940s, though, this moved, I think you pointed out, from morale to psychological warfare. So all of a sudden, this idea of propaganda wasn't being used to promote, uh, uh feelings of, of greatness so much as they were used to direct an agenda. Is this something that we've just seen to increase over the, over the years? 
It it actually is, and I I point again to this long, slow construction of institutions intended to change the ideology of the country. It really begins in the 1930s with the creation of the American Enterprise Association, which was created as a lobbying instrument for W.R. Gray's company to lobby on behalf of asbestos. I see. 1969, um, a holdover from the Goldwater campaign grabs hold of that operation and transforms it into the American Enterprise Institute, focused on free market principles, trying to emphasize individual liberties. Um, not, not a bad thing. It's joined two years later by the Heritage Foundation, which gets formed thanks to $200,000 in contributions from George, uh, from Joe Coors. Mm-hmm. And soon there, by 1978, there are 70, 70 of them. The point, however, was not to do scholarship. Their point was to start producing products that would change how Americans thought from a direction away from what is our shared interest? What are our common interests? What should government do to government is the enemy? Government can do no right. As a consequence, government should be downsized. As Grover Norquist says, shrunk till it fits the size of a bathtub and then drowned in the bathtub. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's prob- that's apropos, in fact. Now, you also began this this concept in your book in the, in the concept regarding a brief history of the new right. Attacking the reporters moved from being what was the exception to being the rule. You touched on this a little bit earlier. You describe how Rove sees it, and I'm, I'm looking at a section of your book where you, you say that Ro- uh, Rove points out that challenging reporters' stories is necessary, Rove implied, not only to correct the record, but to correct the public's perception of the event in favor of one's candidate. I have to ask you this. How do you correct somebody in the direction you want to go? Isn't that manipulation instead of correction? Bring an entirely set of new values to to the table as to what constitutes accuracy. In other words, you change how people view and at the point that you can change the conventional wisdom, what people think as a part of everyday life, then you can change what they think and how they behave. So now it becomes part of everything I do instead of merely a segment of my life. It's, it's, it, it involves everything I do throughout the day. Precisely. And at the point that you're told that government is the enemy, you can start manufacturing excuses to shut down government entirely. Even to the point of shutting off financial regulation, which is how we got into deep trouble in 2007 and 2008, and still are facing a danger because that regulation is not at the scale that it, that it, that's needed. Now, you know, in, in the legal world, uh, the, there's this concept that uh, we you can't scream fire in a crowded theater uh, unless there's actually a fire. And and, and I'm I can't help but wondering how much of this government is bad uh, rhetoric can can occur before people stop to realize, wait a minute, where's where's the fire? Well, it really depends on how many resources are thrown into making that case. And when the resources are unlimited as a result of the Citizens United uh, decision, there's no end to how loudly you can scream that government is the enemy, even if it's needed in order to stop the kind of financial calamity that we went through 2007 and 2008. Now, you mentioned that uh, just now that it depends on the resources that you throw at it. I couldn't agree more. And now I'm I'm starting to wonder if that's not what happened in Texas when Dan Morales decided to go after big tobacco when when dan morales the attorney general of texas decided to go after big tobacco for all of the all of the 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 health uh, problems that it caused to texans 
it really spurred, and you point out in your book, and I think I made the, the connection correctly, but you'll tell me, it spurred this response from Big Tobacco that we needed somebody else in, in play, and it was then that we got John Cornyn for Attorney General, who's the first Republican Attorney General in Texas since Reconstruction. And then, of course, four years later, Rove got him the Senate. Is that an appropriate connection to make? Absolutely appropriate. Rove was working for Altria Group, the uh, the Philip Morris operation, um, while he was part of the Bush inner circle. And as a consequence, it's an easy step from working for Philip Morris, work, working for Altria, to running the campaign of John Cornyn and getting him elected. My goodness. And so we see we see that occurring then to the extent that in less than eight years after that, uh, Republicans held nearly every statewide office uh, in Texas again uh, since Reconstruction. So now it has become part of Texans' everyday lives to to criticize the way government was run and now being told how wonderfully it's being run. Precisely. Okay. Now, the other thing that I found really interesting, if you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show, a, t- a show where we point out and discuss the ever-increasing disappearance of your American rights. Joining us in the studio today is Dr. Bill Israel, and we're talking about basically the noise that is being used by uh, currently the, the rove tactics to manipulate America and hog tie the news as it were now I, I liked in your in your book which which discussed this concept of whispering campaigns and I never really thought about this before uh, until you went into this but it was used by Bush against McCain in his run for the presidency I mean this is where Bush threw out against McCain that he was psychologically damaged that he had an illegitimate Vietnamese child and that's why he got special treatment by the POW uh, that his wife stole drugs that he was a liar cheat and a fraud and and in fact and let me read a little bit from your book here. You said the Bush campaign supporters had engineered a character assassination against McCain and promoted it through handbills, phone calls, push polls, radios, and personal conversation. I can't imagine somebody who, in my mind, is more patriotic, certainly as patriotic, but not more patriotic than John McCain. I mean, this is this is a human being who had who had no business being discredited like that. But these types of campaigns happen. What's a whispering campaign, and why did it work for George Bush? A whispering campaign is an effort to distill just enough truth out of a story so that you can start to swing people in a direction that they may not want to go. The same thing that happened to McCain happened to Governor Ann Richards okay. um, about uh, a few years earlier. In McCain's case, what happened was a black uh, a blackjagging not only of the electorate but of the press. One of my favorite interviews for the book was with Doyle McManus, the former uh, Washington um, bureau chief of the LA Times, who's still a, a uh, columnist for the for the paper, he described being in South Carolina at the time of of this incident, and he said it was ten days before he or or any other correspondent or the electorate realized that there was a passing out of handbills in church parking lots oh the Sunday gosh. before the election. You're and as a consequence, there were vile kinds of, of suggestions made against uh, against McCain, uh, against people who were uh, fundamentalists, people who were true believers, and that had a tremendous impact. And they dumped um, dumped McCain, who had just a little bit earlier had a tremendous victory in New Hampshire, defeating Bush. When it came down to it, um, Carl and his troops were willing to raise any story that they they could in order to make sure it didn't happen again. Well, that's just insane, and and I know that it you had you were curious in writing your book uh, about what journalists thought. What how do journalists view 
Rove and the New Right. And one question that you asked was whether the right had substantially influenced journalism. Uh, it, it, it appears that after you talk to these journalists, you got an answer. And I want to read, just let me read part of it, and then you yeah. tell me. This part just, just, I absolutely love. Uh, the answer that you got from, from both sides uh, of the room when you asked that question was, quote, it's called working the referee. If you boo the decisions against you enough, it changes the referee's behavior, and the right-wingers are not at all reluctant to do that, end quote. Is this right? Is this happening? Absolutely happening. That line comes from a former Pulitzer Prize winner who is now a professor emeritus of journalism at the University of North Carolina. Um, that behavior is exactly what happens. And what was striking in the interviews was that the vast majority of the journalists who I interviewed didn't even recognize that it had happened to them. Oh, my. So it was unknowingly. Unknowingly. But that's an indication of just how slowly deliberately, completely, this ideological change has occurred over time. So reporters now being new to the industry may not understand the concept of investigative journalism a la Bob Woodward uh, and instead become copy readers to a large extent and think that that's appropriate. They don't get a chance to do it. The reality is journalism has been cut to the bone and as a consequence, investigative reporting, which requires a lot of resources, doesn't get done nearly as often as it used to. Well, uh, you know, the, the title of your book, and we're getting down to near the end of the show, but the title of your book suggests the creation of an alternate reality, an alternative reality, similar to what we heard after the GOP convention when Romney campaign said, look, we're not going to let our campaign be dictated by fact checkers, uh, end quote. I mean, doesn't that say it all? Is this an example of, of black propaganda? Uh, I, I've got to wonder if, if we're not just watching this and missing it. This is a reprise of what Richard Vigory, the direct mail wizard, said in 1964. And they didn't like the verdict that the news was coming up with, especially during Watergate, when it became clear Richard Nixon had committed crimes uh, that, that were, were nearly treasonous in scale. Vigory said, you know, we need to short circuit the mainstream media. We need to create our own means of reaching people and we're going to bypass the news. Just amazing to hear. Professor Bill Israel, thank you for joining us today. He's the author of A Nation Seized, How Karl Rove and the Political Right Stole Reality, beginning with the news. You're going to want to read this one. Go out and get your copy today. Thanks for stopping by, Professor. A pleasure, Wayne. Listen, we're going to have to wrap up this show, but as you go through your week, remember that it was Justice Learned Hand who so famously said, if we're to keep our democracy, there must be one commandment, thou shalt not ration justice. Have a good day, everybody. Come visit us on the web, wyattwrightshow.com. Come see us on Facebook, Twitter, or better yet, go get our iTunes podcasts and put them in your, your machine. See you next week right here on Justice for All, The Wyatt Wright Show. Why?